Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In early March, the Biden administration released its Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, a so-called skinny version of a national security strategy. The full strategy is not due until the start of next year, but it is noteworthy that the administration felt the need to issue this 20-odd page long document within two months of Inauguration Day. That speed is not accidental. As President Biden concluded in his introductory letter, quote, we have no time to waste. The simple truth is America cannot afford to be absent any longer on the world stage. And under the Biden-Harris administration, America is back. Diplomacy is back. Alliances are back. But we are not looking back. We are looking irrevocably toward the future and all that we can achieve for the American people together. Bold words. But back from where? Their meaning depends on drawing specific contrasts with the 2017 national security strategy issued by the Trump administration. What are those contrasts? What does this document tell us about the Biden administration's plans? And how will those plans look once they collide with the global realities of the 2020s? To help us better understand this interim guidance, we are delighted to have with us today Dr. Jacqueline Witt. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Chair of National Security at the U.S. Army War College, and, more importantly for us, Editor-in-Chief of the War Room. Dr. Witt, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's so nice to join you today, Ron. Thanks. So, uh, Jackie, what's the point of documents like this? So I think this is, I think it's a great question. And I think this is something that we have to talk about with our students, you know, every, every year. Because the national security strategy has become, you know, within just the past few decades, um, a real touchstone for thinking about strategy and national security. Uh, So they don't go back for forever, right? George Washington did not have a national security (laughs) strategy. National security, you know, itself is a more modern concept, a more recent concept. Uh, And these are really... um, sort of artifacts of the of the late Cold War mm-hmm. and then the post-Cold War period. And they've, of course, continued by congressional mandate now. And so I think they are an opportunity for administrations to set, to set out a vision, just like the president submits a budget that's really an aspiration, just like a president might set out domestic, you know, a domestic policy vision. This is a president's foreign policy and national security vision. And so for me, I think about them as rhetorical documents. Mm-hmm. They are their political documents. They are, you know, they're historical in the sense that they are they're formed in a particular moment in time that that matters. And so if we think about them 
as serving, you know, different functions with different audiences, we can start to make more sense of them. Because if you think of them as strategy, ends, ways, means, resources, all of that, right. they're no such thing. Right. They're not, they're not actually strategic at all. Often they're like a list of things that we think are good ideas. Well, and I went out of my way to quote that rhetorical flourish at the end of the introduction, because if there is a single theme in the in this document, it is that America is back, that everything is back. Oh. But what does it mean to be back? And can we go back? And you know, the fact that, that the president even recognizes that it's a bad idea to talk about going back by saying that we are still looking irrevocably toward the future, whatever looking that's supposed to mean. Yeah, I mean... I mean Oh, I'm going to have to put the disclaimer like right in the middle of the podcast, which is <laughs> that these views are my own and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, the Army War College, or any other organization that I'm affiliated with. Um, because at a at an instinctual like gut level, I really, really hate the phrase "America is back" mm -hmm. because it sounds I don't know. It sounds jingoistic and egoistic and self-centered and all sorts of things um, that sort of give me pause as an academic and as a citizen. Um, but this idea, this contrast mm -hmm. that President Biden is, you know, shaping in this document is so clear. We are going back to something, um, you know, pre pre 2016 and pre 2017 when the, when the Trump, uh, national security strategy came out. Um, and this has been a theme throughout his campaign on foreign policy, on domestic policy, the idea of sort of like a rewind, a reset. Um, and I think that's, so I think that's important. So it's not anything that you wouldn't expect. Joe Biden did not run on the idea that he was going to be innovative and do all sorts of new things. He is and was a candidate and you know, I think will be a president who is, he's a politician. He does what he does. He's in the mid, he's like been in the middle of the democratic party for his entire career. And so to expect wild swings from him would actually be quite unusual. So we're going to go back to Obama era officials. We're going to go back to Obama era policies in many cases, back to Obama era emphasis on alliances, international organizations, things like that. So mm -hmm. I think that's the that's where we get it from. Um, but I'm I'm not a huge phrase of the America is back well rhetoric. Yeah, and and in part because right, you know, whatever one thinks about what's happened the past 4 years, the 4 year, the past 4 years have happened. And it's not as though you can pretend they didn't happen. And it's not yeah, as you though can't you can't just like back. rewind and go blah, 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 like <clears> and, and, <laughs> like we don't get a mulligan. There's no do over. No. And you, you, you know, the, you can't cross the same river twice and all of that. You, you have to deal with foreign policy choices and strategic choices where you are and where you are is after four years of a Trump administration. Right. And one could make the argument that um, if everything that was being done four years ago was so perfect, then the administration maybe would not have been repudiated by somebody, by the American people electing mm -hmm. somebody to do the exact opposite, right? That clearly there are right. some things that need to change. But let's, let's uh, I'm going to say the most academic thing I'm going to say in this whole conversation. 
So Jackie, let's unpack this document for Perfect. a moment, right? Thank you. I had, I just had to, I had to say, it. but let's, let's unpack this for a second. It's, it's only about a third the length of the 2017 national security strategy. And it's a very different document, but um, let's start by saying, you know, what's, what's not in this document that was in the 2017 national security strategy. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's striking about the 2017 national security strategy really, and, and we did a war room podcast on it when it came out is actually how much continuity there was between the 2017 version and previous national security strategies. These are a particular genre with a couple of exceptions in the George W. Bush era. They have a similar feel. And even the Trump administration 2017 version didn't feel like a departure Mm -hmm. from the genre. It's in part because of who wrote it and how it came out and all sorts of things. Whether it actually matched U.S. foreign policy at the time a, you know, a different question. What is striking to me about this one is that there, it's it's structured around a sort of landscape, the global security landscape, and around priorities. What it doesn't do is lay out an explicit list of threats to the United States. And there's been different formulations of that, right? Four plus one, two and two and one, and you know, all sorts of different combinations, but it's been pretty stable around Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and violent extremism in Mm -hmm. some form or fashion for the past almost two decades. And we don't see that formulation here. Instead, what we see is an outline of truly sort of global ideas, um, you might call them threats or vulnerabilities, but they're positioned in this document as opportunities, right? So an opportunity to change the course on climate change, an opportunity to think strategically about competition, note competition, not conflict with China, an opportunity to counter misinformation and disinformation uh, globally with China and Russia sort of being called out on that. Um, and so I think this this positioning of global issues and the positioning of opportunity rather than threats is quite notable. Um, the other thing that is very noticeable to me, or was noticeable when I read it, is the explicit calling out of diplomacy as the option of first resort. Uh, and this has been, again, I, I, if we've watched what President Biden has done in terms of the order that he named cabinet officials, the um, sort of who has had the lead on different things, where different uh, pieces of expertise are, are positioned throughout the throughout the U.S. government right now. Uh, I think that's been another another clear signal that yes, military strength is important, readiness, all of that matters, uh, but diplomacy. And the full span of American statecraft uh, is going to be a focus. Uh, yeah, I I did notice that that it's both a it's a it's a sentence in the text, and it's also made sure to be given a, a text box um, on uh, on page thirteen. Right, it says, uh, you know, we will make smart and disciplined choices regarding our national defense and the responsible use of our military, while elevating diplomacy as our tool of first resort. That phrase that well, that whole sentence, right? It's I, I, who's going to disagree with that? 
right? To be smart and disciplined, good. Um, be responsible in the use of our military, yes. Elevate diplomacy as a tool of first resort, sure. Um, I will note that one of the critiques that I read of this document from the Heritage Foundation, unsurprisingly, not huge fans, they call this virtue signaling on the part of the Biden administration. Um, and I am curious when we think about this, right? The fact that the Biden administration feels that it's necessary. I noticed that the word, the word diplomacy um, appears at least a dozen times in the text. Um, the phrase great power competition does not appear once, even though the, the 2017 NSS specifically framed everything, framed a lot of things in terms of great power competition. And you know, virtue signaling is a disdainful term, but so much of this document is clearly signaling something. Yeah, but um, all, I yes. mean, all in a, and then we go back to the first part, all right. of national security strategies are virtue signaling. Right. They're signaling. In the just, sense that they are expressions, mm -hmm. rhetorical, political, cultural, historical expressions of a moment in time and of an administration's orientation to the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that the phrase virtue signaling has become a sort of catchphrase to itself signal a cultural, a sort of cultural critique of, you know, a, a certain American political party. Um, it, it doesn't follow that the 2017 national security strategy didn't also signal in important ways, the Trump administration's priorities and orientation to, to the world. So my, my like flip response is, of course, what did you expect? Um, and the, and the, the more analytical response is, of course, what did you expect? Let's look <laughs> at let's look at all of the ways that as you know, as a genre of document, these these national security strategies tell us about the world that we live in and tell us about the administration's priorities and orientation. And it's a it's a separate and different but really important question then to look at how the administration's actions line up with the words and the rhetoric, right? Um, I was reading a report this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to forget who it was, who it was from, but it basically says the most important thing that, that the United States does in terms of its foreign policy is what it does in the world. That you can't, you can't just, talk about it in nice ways if it's inconsistent with what what your actions are well and and this is a very good uh, a very good segue into another point that that struck me reading it that I'd love to get your uh, your uh, feelings about and that is one term that shows up an awful lot in this document into uh, according to my quick search here 23 times is the word democracy um, and there's a lot of talk about the need for the United States to strengthen its democracy at home as part of credibility abroad. Um, and I don't remember that being, uh, whereas previous versions of national security strategies talk about the, the need for the United States to be strong and prosperous and to defend that prosperity. But the idea that the United States needs to demonstrate the strength or, or shore up its own democracy at home as a part of its national security strategy. That strikes me as, as, uh, as, as a reflection of particular concerns, you know, circa 2021 
But it also, it strikes me as a little unusual in a document of this kind to have so many references to the uh, American democracy at home. What do you think about that? I think you're exactly right. And not only references to American democracy at home, but explicit references to domestic political events mm-hmm. and the sort of domestic situation in the United States, right? It, it explicitly talks about uh, the killing of George Floyd. It specifically talks about racial um, strife and unrest at home. Democratic, we would call it democratic backsliding uh, mm-hmm. in the United States, um, as evidenced in the in the 2020 election through uh, the inauguration in 2021. And so I think this is this is another statement um, that has been made, I think, in, in one of the Secretary of State's early speeches uh, about the relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. The connection in this document between the American domestic economy and American foreign policy related to economics and trade is, is quite clear. Uh, and the Biden administration wants to make those links explicit that foreign policy isn't an esoteric or disconnected piece of the American political arena, that it has clear and direct impact on Americans' lives. Um, and, And so the reverse might also be true, right? That if the United States uh, is supposed to, in a, in you know, in the exceptionalist formulation, be a city on a hill is supposed to be an exemplar, then it needs to live out its highest ideals, its democratic values, respect for human rights, respect for civil rights. Um, and again, this disconnect between what the United States says and what it does how can you support democratization overseas if it appears that you're backsliding at home? How can you support, um, you know, civil rights and religious freedom and so on and so forth overseas if it seems constrained at home? And I think in a globalized age in a global environment where media, social media, all of the things are crossing boundaries and borders all the time, it's not that there is no distinction between foreign policy and domestic policy, but they, but they are closely linked together. And I think this document much more explicitly than previous ones makes that point quite clear. Well, and, and that gets to a, a, a central paradox for me when I think about the, uh, American foreign policy, and especially a lot of the current discourse around American foreign policy, right? They, this NSS talks about restoring alliances and bringing back relationships. Um, And yet, if we're talking about relationships with other democratic states, which also have their own their own interests, their own structures, their own political pressures, it's not just a matter of the United States turning on or turning off our engagement with our allies. The idea of actually respecting the fact that our allies may have moved on in some places or may not do exactly what we want. Um, is it, you know, how should we imagine revitalizing American democracies if we're not really sure that our allies are going to want to do exactly the things that we want them to do? Right. Well, this is, this is the, this is the difficult part and you can, you can make quad charts all day long about (laughs) go it alone or lead from behind or the coalition of the willing and all of that. Um, but I think one of the things that we see from this document is a requirement, um, to, to listen to what people are, 
are saying to us uh, in a in a real and meaningful way, and to try to find to try to find the areas where values and interests align, where where there is room for that persuasion and, and negotiation to happen. I don't I don't see in the document a sense um, that if they that if the Biden administration can't get allies on board, they're unwilling to act. Um, but I think it I think this is a place where, especially toward our European sort of partners uh, in in particular and, and probably also within um, East and Southeast Asia as well, uh, that there are there are very important signals being sent about uh, how the United States sees its interest, how it's how it sees its partnerships with with others. Um, and I do think that is a place where the rhetoric and reality of the last four years, there's demonstrable damage when you look at U.S. reputation abroad, when you look at, um, you know, pol- public opinion polling that talks about, do you trust America as a security partner? Do you trust them as an economic partner? Um, those sort of measures have have declined pretty demonstrably in the last four years. And so if you think that's important, then that's something that you need to you know put energy toward. And I think again, we have a we have an administration who thinks that's important, and so I sh- we should expect them to put time and energy toward that uh, toward restoring that mm-hmm. that relationship. But even even so, right the the idea that in those first couple of in the weeks after November, while the 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 expressions of joy and relief rolled in from various allied capitals, right, this did not stop the Europeans from striking a deal with China on trade that they, that, that the Biden administration said, Hey guys, can you wait until Absolutely. after, after, or, and, and it's not as though the Germans said, Oh, we're so glad you're president Joe Biden. We don't need Nord Stream two anymore. Um, and, <laughs> and so the, I mean, this is, I guess this, this gets back to that idea of, you know, is how do you, how do you imagine? And you know, clearly this document, you know, the, 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 the full strategy will, will probably have more detailed sections on the different regions, the way that the full mm-hmm. strategies do. But how, sh- how does one, if, if you phrase all this in terms of America's back, diplomacy's back, diplomacy matters, diplomacy is a process, diplomacy is not a result. And if you don't like the results of diplomacy, how do you imagine an administration is going to explain? Uh, you know, why they're still, they're just happy, gosh darn it, to be uh, talking to our friends again, even if we still don't get what we want, even if relations maybe continue to drift apart. Yeah, I think this is, I think this is really important as well. And it gets back to what these documents do and what they don't do. This one lays out very, very few specific, you know, aims or objectives or goals. Um, Because I think the it, it is valuing process and all sorts of things. Um, but my, my hunch is all of that's all of that has to be renegotiated because mm-hmm. you, you can't, un, you can't undo the last four years. You can't undo the last 12 years. Right. So you can't travel, you can't travel back in time and undo, you can't travel back in time and undo nine 11. You can't undo Iraq. You can't undo Afghanistan. You can't undo the refugee crisis uh, and the migrant flows from the middle East, you know, into Europe. Um, and, you know, our European partners have changed political contexts as well, right? Mm-hmm. The things that we talk about in a domestic, you know, American context at home, these aren't, 
necessarily anomalous when you look at populism, nationalism, violent extremism, right? They, they have different, they have different flavors in all of these different places. And so part of the, I think part of the message here is that we can, we can reset some of the, some of the relationships, rebuild some of that. Um, but the, the goals still seem quite nebulous, right? Mm-hmm. When we look at like the top line formulations of security, prosperity, and values, those are those are big nouns, and they all have, they all have different meanings, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what we mean by security, what provides security, what we mean by prosperity, prosperity for whom, what we mean by values, right? Whose values, whose interests? All of those are questions that have to be asked, and they have to be asked with our allies and partners, as well as at home. Right. One one last thing is uh, uh, that I'm curious about is when the when the 2017 strategy came out, there was a lot made of specifically naming the person who wrote it. In part mm-hmm. because the Trump administration, I think, wanted to sort of signal to in both directions, right? They wanted to signal to the establishment that we they had a very smart member of the establishment, Nadia Shadlow, wrote it, which was so that people would see that this was a responsible person writing it, and it was also uh, an adult know, in the room, an right? adult in the room, as it were. Um, my understanding with this particular document is I have not heard word one. Nobody is going around and saying this was written by Jake Sullivan. This was written by Tony Blinken. What what should we should we make anything of that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I've also heard not a peep, mm-hmm. um, and I I'm also not super surprised. My guess is when we get the full one, mm-hmm. we'll have a better sense of of who's writing it, uh, and I'm sure there's probably some textual analysis AI <laughs> thing that someone is running somewhere to like to figure out who who wrote the thing. Um, I think in a document that's of this length. I think the most important thing was that it got out fast, mm-hmm. uh, that it that it signals a, a change, it signals different priorities, uh, signals a different sort of orientation. And so I am I'm not surprised that we haven't heard, you know, who 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 had the pen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think in in the fullness of time, when we see the full NSS, my guess is we'll have a better a better sense of, of who's contributing to that. Right. And and I guess that's something we need to watch about the Biden administration anyway. If people are policy, right, the the way that the different appointees work with each other, the decisions that have already been made, um, the, that, that the idea that, that Tony Blinken as Secretary of State has been much more uh, visible and public than Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense is that can't be accidental, I think, in the way the Biden administration has gone about talking about the United States international role. For sure. And at the same time, we still have slews of political appointments to go mm-hmm. uh, at state, at defense, at aid, um, you know, across the board of, of agencies and departments that deal in, in the foreign policy realm. Um, the Biden administration is behind in that regard, uh, it's you know they're thinking about after Easter before they get some of the assistance in. Mm-hmm. That's a long time, and so you do have these top line folks um, at state, you know, some at defense, and they're they're you know they're on social media. They're sort of making making some of the rounds, and it's becoming clear. But I think it's going to be we're still a little ways off from having a a full picture of how Biden administration foreign policy is going to go down. It's tough, uh, you know. I guess if you if you're insisting on if if you're trying to come back, right? Sometimes you have to huff and puff to catch up, right? Um, I 
I am afraid to say that we have just about run out of time. We could talk about a lot more. And I, I, I tell you what, I will, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say the second most academic thing. I'm going to say, we're going to put a pin in this conversation <laughs> so that um, you will come back and we will talk about the full national security strategy when it comes up later on. And we will see how many of the things we talked about today uh, were either intensified or contradicted by the next version. But, um, but I want to say thank you, Dr. Jekyll and Witt, for joining us today to talk about the national security strategy and a better peace. Great. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs on A Better Peace and send us suggestions for future programs. And please, after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, because of course you want to subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that other people can find us as well and be part of this community. We are always interested in having you with us and hearing from you. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.